God in heaven, we come now to the reading and preaching of your word, and we ask for grace to understand. I ask for the grace to explain, and I pray for all uh, pastors in our land who will be preaching from the Bible this morning. I pray that you would give us all the wisdom that we need to explain your truth to your people, and that you would make us strong and wise in our faith. In Jesus' holy name, amen. If you would turn to page 1040, you find this morning's sermon reading. Ephesians 4, I'll read from verse 25 through 32. He's continuing with this theme of body life, of how the church is supposed to act towards one another. Therefore, putting away lying... Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So what Paul is doing here in this passage is he's continuing to build on these themes. In the early part of chapter 4, he talked about how when Christ ascended on high, he gave the the four speaking gifts to certain men. The gifts of remember, uh, being a prophet, being an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, and a pastor, and and actually five, pastor and a teacher. Those five gifts were given to disseminate the truth, to spread the truth throughout the world. Because as Paul says in Romans 10, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If there were no New Testament prophets and apostles to write the Word of God, then I would have nothing to preach from. And nobody in church history would have anything to preach from. And every week, a pastor could get up and make up whatever he wanted. If that were the case, well, guess what? I change. My moods change. Every pastor's mood changes. I could say one thing one week and a completely different thing the next week. But the word of God is sure, the word of God is stable, and the word of God is eternal. So if we stick to what is written, we'll be safe from our moods. At least we'll be safer from our moods than we would be without it. And Paul is giving us, quite frankly, a very tall glass of water to drink here. In these, these few verses. I could preach on every single verse alone as a sermon, but they are to be taken as a whole. Just think about what our lives would be like if these, if these things happened. Now, some of them already are. But the goal is to have them continually grow in our life. Put away lying. Imagine if no one lied in church, if nobody lied in your families, if nobody lied in a workplace. If nobody lied in government. And imagine if lying were eradicated from human behavior. Just imagine what the world would look like. 
If everything that everybody said, if you could trust every single word, what would that do for you? It would sure make me very happy. You wouldn't have to worry about anything. But we know that that's not the case. We live in an imperfect world. However, the church is supposed to be very different than the world. We should, frankly, sadly, expect lying and falsehood outside of these doors. When we turn on our television and watch shows, we should expect lying. We should expect the entertainment industry to teach us lies. To teach our children lies. Other things we see on TV, various commercials and whatnot, we should expect sometimes a little less than the truth. Because sin, sin is almost like oxygen in our world. It's almost as if our society couldn't live without sin. We can't live without oxygen. And it seems as if our popular culture could not, could not exist without sin. I actually had someone once tell me, you know, heaven sounds as if it would be boring. And I said, well, how, on, how on earth could you possibly say that? He said, well, we wouldn't have this thing reeled off a whole bunch of things. I said, everything you mentioned is sinful. And he goes, you're right. I said, so how could not having those things be boring? He said, but I enjoy it. I said, well, there you have it. You enjoy those five particular sins, but I could name five other ones that you definitely wouldn't enjoy that you're very glad aren't there. Paul talks about stealing a little later in the passage. Look in verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. Got to go to work. Working with his hands what is good. Why? So that he might have something to give him who has need. See, nobody likes thieves, do they? Nobody. Nobody likes to be robbed. And Paul is here giving us a social platform. Stealing's against the law. Not only do you not have to stop stealing, but you have to find a job. Not only do you have to stop stealing and find a job, you have to be willing to give some of that back to those who have a need. And by way of deduction, we can figure out that those who are in need from this verse are those who cannot work. Those who are disabled, those who are too old or too sick or too young to work. No one in their right mind expects a two-year-old to work for their living, do they? They'd just be insane. But the one who is able to work has to work and cannot steal. And furthermore, that money cannot be hoarded for their own benefit, but some of it has to be used for those who cannot take care of themselves. Those who legitimately cannot take care of themselves have got to be looked after by the church. With regard to anger, in the previous verses, in between these two verses, he says, be angry and do not sin. It's possible to be angry and not, and, and not to sin. There are many of us who think that anger itself is a sin, but that's not, that's not necessarily true. Now, when we think about anger, I'd like you to think for a minute if you got angry at any time this week. Did you get angry at something that was unrighteous? You read about some kind of injustice in the world. 
You read about a crime that occurred to, to a family, or you hear about something that happened to somebody that you know or love that was unjust and wrong. It's perfectly okay to be angry about that. It's perfectly okay. When you think about the horrors of this world, if you read a story about a war, and, and, and you read about you know, children being killed, you know, and, and, you, and you read the word collateral damage or something like that, it's perfectly okay to say that's wrong. That's, you get angry at that. But most of the time when we get angry, it's usually because someone has done something fairly petty to us or we've done something petty to somebody else and they've called us on it and now we're mad. Not all the time, but usually. And sometimes it's a mixed bag. Sometimes this is a mixed bag. But what he's saying here is be angry and do not sin. And furthermore, think of how, what kind of peace would be in our families if we did not let the sun go down on our wrath. There's, there's, um, you have to realize that life is very short. And more than one person has experienced this, this horror that they get into a fight with a loved one. That happens, Right? It happens. You get into a fight with a dearly loved one, someone who lives under the same roof with you, who has the same last name as you, who has the same goals and values as you. You actually have an an argument. It happens. You say harsh things to each other and you're angry. And then one or both parties have to get into a car, go to work, go to an appointment. When that occurs, and I'm pretty sure it's occurred to, that has occurred to almost every adult in this room. If it hasn't, then you're very, very blessed. When that occurred, did you have an absolute ironclad guarantee that both cars would arrive home safely? You don't. You don't. Do you know how tragic that is to have the, have the last thing you said to some of your loved ones? To have it be an argument. I read one time about a, a very famous musician whose brother died young, and he said, You know, the last thing I said to my brother was a lie. I lied right to his face. He had stole something from his brother, and his brother asked him, Where is it? I don't have it. So the last thing he said, his brother died that afternoon. That's his last memory, he's lying to his brother. You can't apologize once they're gone. That's why Paul is saying, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Actually, Paul didn't say that. Old Testament writers said that. This calls for daily confession. Daily saying, I'm sorry. Daily making up. And if you hold on to that anger, and we know we can hold on to anger for more than one night... You can hold on to it for weeks and months and years and decades. And if you've done that, what, what, what good is it? Has it, has it? has it made you stronger? Has it strengthened your faith? Has it strengthened your mind? I'll tell you what, it has a horrible effect on your body. When you get angry, you, you, you get all tense, your neck tenses up. Your whole body feels like it's shriveling up. It's all tense. And sometimes we meet people that are in a state of perpetual anger. It's just like, man, they they feel like they're going to snap. You hold on to that. It grinds you down. The question is, is is life really worth that? 
even if something horrible has happened to you, if you hold on to the anger, you're not hurting the person who hurt you. They don't care. If they did care, they wouldn't have hurt you in the first place. When you hold on to it, you're just hurting yourself. And you're actually still giving control to that perpetrator. You're still letting them have control over you. That's why forgiveness is so important. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 32. If you skip down to the end of the passage. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Even as God in Christ forgave you. No matter what anybody has done to you, no matter what you have done to anyone else, it cannot possibly compare to the debt that each of us owes to God. And God forgave you for what you have done. Therefore, we have to forgive those who have hurt us. You see, the offense that we have committed as individuals and as a people, and by people I mean throughout history, not just our church, but the entire human race, was of such a weight that God saw fit from all eternity to ordain that His only begotten Son would die for those sins. Now I'd like you to ask a question of yourself. I'd like you to think for a moment about a painful memory, someone who has hurt you, offended you or something. If you were in a court of law, would, that, would you say that that's worthy of death? Now, some of you might have experienced something that would be worthy of death. Okay. I want to be sensitive to that. There are certain offenses that are worthy of death, and the state should be putting them down. And I think we know what I'm talking about. But what about the lesser things that, you're, that we hold on to? If we wanted justice for someone, would we say that the electric chair was, was, was what was required? You said this to me, you offended me. Let's, let's, get, let's get the gallows. Probably not. Now again, let me just dial back and say, there are some of you who might have been hurt, particularly as children, And those things did deserve a death sentence. That's not for the church to do. That's the state's job. The the Christian has to forgive personally. The church has to forgive as a body. The state has no right to forgive. It's not its job. Romans 13 says very clearly that the state is the sword of the Lord for justice. You see, the church is where mercy and grace are pronounced. The state has got to deal with justice. We pronounce justice too in the cross who was represented at the table And we offer the message of forgiveness to people. However, the state has to say the church has forgiven you. Fantastic, but guess what? You've got five minutes left on this earth. Here's your pastor. Get right with God. So if someone has done something to you that is worthy of that, 
That is one thing. But think about the other things that we hold on to. Would we say that the person deserves death? Most of us would say, you know what, I just want them to feel bad for at least a week or so. Just feel really, real. I want you to feel lousy for it, okay? That's what I, I want you to, actually what most of us want to say is, can you please just grovel for a little bit? Ask me to forgive you more than once. Maybe four, five, a half dozen times. Stretch it out over maybe ten days. And really show me that you feel bad and do a little bit of groveling and we'll be okay. Honestly, that's what most of us would be happy with. Now that's not right, but that's what most of us would be happy with. Because most of us will say, we know that the person can't take it back. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look in the mirror and we say, well, I've done something similar. Maybe not exactly like it, but I've messed up too. And it would be nice if someone forgave me and didn't make me grovel around. But Paul is saying, God forgave you. Therefore, we have to forgive others. Because God forgave us for something much more heavy in terms of debt. That's what the parable of the unforgiving servant is all about. You know that one, right? Servant owes money to the master, and the master's going to throw him to justice. And he begs and he pleads. And the master forgives the debt. It's a mo- monetary debt. He forgives the debt. So now the servant goes out and someone lower on the totem pole, a lesser servant, owes him money less than he owed the master. And how did that unforgiving servant act? He acted with brutal justice. Brutal justice. And the master hears about it, calls him back into his presence. Give an account of yourself. Did I not forgive you of this? And then the master meets out justice to the unforgiving servant. We don't want to be unforgiving servants. We want to be like God and we want to forgive people who have hurt us. This is the only way the church can and should function. Verse 29 is very important. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And this is coupled with verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now let me just comment on verse 31 where it said that last, um, that last phrase, with all malice. Um, in English, it looks a little weird. It almost reads as if bitterness, anger, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking are to be put away with malice. That's not what it's saying. It's saying put away all of these things and also malice. That's what it's talking about. And, and really, when you read it with some common sense, that's the case, but I wanted to make it very clear. Maliciousness has got to go. Bitterness has got to go. Wrath and anger are obviously very different things. They're not just different levels. But wrath very often has has a physical manifestation that simple anger doesn't have. Clamor. What is clamor? It's not a word you hear too much anymore. You hear it from older folks. Clamor. What are you clamoring about? What does that mean? Whining. Whining and complaining. 
you know, that, that muttering under the breath. You know, you hear, you're going to hear it tomorrow on the, in the workplace. Those of you who work, you're going to hear it tomorrow. Some, or maybe not tomorrow, sometime during the week, you're going to hear somebody mutter under their breath. It happens in workplaces. I know it does. And you know it too. And maybe you do it. Most of us have done it at one time. <laughs> It's like that commercial that the remember that cartoon, those of you who are my age, that cartoon with that uh that little hey it was a dog or something. And he didn't speak, he just went around dastardly and muttly or something like that. That's all he would do. Just just he would just clamor the whole show. And we thought it was funny. That's not funny. What 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 do what do parents and grandparents do when their uh, kids and grandparents act like this? What do we tell them? Zip it. Be quiet. Do you not understand what no more words mean? And then we might sit them down and give them a lesson. You have a lot to be thankful for. And we reel off all of the benefits that they have, which are true. And then we reel off all types of disbenefits, so to speak, that other children in other parts of the world might have. And we're true about that. Well, what about us adults? We all have troubles. We all have headaches in this life. But, you know... We've been given pretty good, pretty good lives. None of us have perfect lives. We all have sorrows. We all have heartbreaks. We all have issues. But by and large, we as a people have been given pretty decent lives. Just the fact that we're in America is right away. When I was a kid, when I used to go roller skating, they'd have a race. And if you're a really fast roller skater, you had to start farther back. You had to start farther back because it wouldn't be fair to the other kids who could, couldn't zoom, zoom around as quick. They don't do that in the Olympics with, uh, with ice skating. Everybody has to start the same line. You know, handicap, they would call it. They probably wouldn't call it that anymore. We all have these things. But honestly, just by being able to say, I'm a United States citizen, you're already starting way past the starting line. This is a great place to live. Not a perfect place, but you want to live anyplace else? Might be nice to visit the British Isles, right? Might be nice to visit Germany. You have a town that you know that's where you're from. You want to visit there, but do you want to move there? You want to pay their taxes? You want to live with their terror? No, you want to come back home. Why? Because this is where everybody wants to live. Everybody's trying to get here. Why? Because this is the, this is the place. So you see, all the clamoring and whatnot that we do, we have to think, I've been given a good life, I've been given a pretty, I have a job. Can't stand my boss, but I've got a job. Got a house. Yes, something's broke, but I have a house. You kids, if I can pick on you, just not pick on you, just talk to you for a minute. You have food? You have food in your bellies? Okay, maybe it's not as sweet as you want. Maybe you have to eat your broccoli or your green beans. But a lot of people don't have broccoli or green beans. And what's very important about all this is that this, all of these behaviors are meant so that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in verse 30, by whom we receive for the day of redemption. 
You see, the church is supposed to be absent from all of these behaviors so that those who are in the world and who experience these things on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, they come and they say, wow, these, these people aren't bitter. They're, they're, they sin against each other, but then they forgive each other. And they're supposed to kind of scratch their head and say, there's a, this is a bunch of weird people over there at Middlesex Presbyterian. They're, they're just it's almost too good to be true. Well, maybe I'll go, I'm going to take a witness with me next week. I'm going to bring somebody else next week just to see if I was hallucinating there, to see if they're all really that nice. And they come back a third and fourth week and they say, you know what? They can't be faking it for this long. They actually don't give place to the devil. We forget that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We forget that the evil one is the source of all the mischief in the world. And honestly, verse 29 and verse 31, if we could just put those things into effect, because most of us don't steal, and most of us aren't out-and-out liars, but if we could really put into effect verses 29 and 31 with with the speech habits, our lives would dramatically improve. No corrupt word. No, that's an absolute thing. Proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification? So we have to define a corrupt word as that which is not necessary for edification. Edification and may impart grace to the hearers. Would you like to impart God's grace to people? Wouldn't that be a powerful thing to do? To be able to go to somebody and say, I'm going to impart God's grace to you now. Kiss my ring. I'm going to impart God's grace to you now. You can. All day, every day. You can impart God's grace simply by saying what is necessary for edification. That means you say to people what they need to hear in order to build up their faith. And sometimes that means speaking the truth in love and speaking something that's not exactly pleasant for the other person to hear, but they have to know that you're saying it to them in love for their benefit and you're not just trying to beat them up. You know, when someone comes to you, a good friend, and they talk with you, and they give you, you know, what's the word we use, the phrase? Constructive criticism. You know, and that's true. If it's a good friend, you know, a brother or a sister... Even as we get older, a parent, <laughs> we, we say, okay, you know, I, I think you have a point there. You know, you're right. You know, you've said this to me many times. You're probably right. We're willing to hear it if we know that the person has our best interests at heart. If we think they're just trying to be mean, then, what ha- then we just, I don't want to hear this from you. And, and frankly, ne- neither should we. If someone just wants to tear you down, you don't have a responsibility to sit there and let them beat you up. Now, if they're signing your paycheck, you have to sit there and grin and bear it at times. But I'd like you to turn back to chapter 3 as we close. I just need to show you something very, very important here. Around verse 8 or so. The entire book of Ephesians is talking about the unity of God's people and God's divinely sanctioned way for that unity to manifest itself. 
And there's three levels of benefit for that unity. The first is, hey, it's going to make our lives better. The second level is, it's a great witness to unbelievers. But listen, there's a deeper level to this. A deeper level to this. And this is what Paul is talking about by giving no place to the devil. Paul, in in chapter 3, is talking about how he, as the apostle and prisoner to the Gentiles, was given this great responsibility and honor of preaching the wisdom of God that was a mystery that was hidden from all time. That was that the Gentiles would be included in the people of God with the people of ancient Israel. Verse 8, To me... Who am the less than least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable witness of Christ. Why? Here it is. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of ages was hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. And here's our part. Listen carefully. To the intent, or with the intent, that now. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to who? By the church. To who? To us? To unbelievers? No. To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is talking about spiritual warfare. By us developing this community ethos, by speaking all these wonderful things to each other, we effectively tell the evil powers in this universe, you've lost. You've lost. Jesus died. He's rose from the grave. You have no future. You realize what an honor that is. That God has given to us as a people the honor of telling the evil one and his forces goodbye. Have fun while you're here because your time is so short. And we do it simply by loving each other and not giving place to the devil. We have a great honor in God's purpose and in God's plan of not only helping our lives, of not only helping the, the unsaved, but by literally you know, telling the evil powers off by loving each other. Not by railing against them, but just by our lives. They'll say, these people are driving me nuts. I can't get them angry at each other. Would you like to get the evil one mad? Like frustrated? Tell me the truth. Have you ever wanted to frustrate another human being? I know you have. You wanted to get under their skin. Well, here we're giving carte blanche to get under the skin of the evil principalities and powers in the universe. And we do it almost by accident, by living holy and loving lives. You can actually make the evil ones grind their teeth and say, you know what? I can't stand these people anymore. I can't wait till they're gone. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to go someplace else. Forgive each other. Don't let the anger go down on your wrath. Lord, please, help us to see the big picture that you have presented there. 
and grant us the grace to become those type of people. And, and, and this type, that type of church, let us continue to grow in these areas. And we do ask that you would bring to us those who have known nothing but pain and anger and misery. And that they would come here and you would heal them through us. In Jesus' name, amen.